This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, we were talking about the success of CARP's annual general meeting the Thursday before. Doug Ford gave the keynote speech, but not before some CARP members expressed their distaste for CARP's decision to invite Ontario's premier to speak. In his opening remarks for the AGM, CARP's president and Zoomer Media founder, Moses Neimer, asked those in attendance to listen to the premier, hear him out, especially on the future of long-term care and home care following the devastating effects of COVID in LTC, which happened under Doug Ford's watch. And then there is the message from CARP members in this election year in Ontario, of fewer promises and more action. Libby discussed the event with our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating officer and chief policy officer. Older Ontarians are tired of promises that are going to take five or six or more years to uh, uh, to be be accomplished. We're talking specifically in areas like home and community care, long-term care. They've made some, you know, there have been some good announcements as we talked about uh, last uh, week about immediately uh, 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 changing or building uh, new uh, new facilities. And we have to make sure that we've, our health system is uh, uh, getting back in shape again to look after all the people whose whose uh, diagnosis have meant that they are now delayed in the services they want, and they can't wait more than six or ten months to have this uh, have this happen. So uh, we think it's reasonable, and uh, we think that uh, the government should be should be able to do that, and we want to make sure they do. Moses brought this up. Moses, of course, um, the, he's the head of CARP, the founder of this station, my brother. And he brought this out into the open when he was introducing Doug Ford. He said that there were a handful of members who wanted to cancel their membership because Doug Ford was going to speak. One guy said he'd rather cut off his arm rather than listen to the Premier of Ontario. Then he said, you know, what is this that people can't even stand to listen to people who have a slightly different opinion? And it really sparked a lot of conversations. David, uh, were you surprised to see this? Well, I wasn't surprised um, for two reasons. First of all, we had had a member um, focus group the week before and um, we had over 200 people from across the country take part. And they wanted the, just a general question. What are you looking forward to? What are you worrying about? What are your issues for 2022? And a lot of them commented on the lack of tolerance and the anger and the divisiveness. And it was a little bit of a, you know, motif uh, in that meeting. So I was, I was open minded. I thought uh, Moses position, I was hoping would be 
positively received. But also, as he was saying it, we had over a, we had close to a thousand people attending the AGM over the internet. As he was speaking, these little pop-up comments were appearing all every second. Well said, Moses. Finally, someone said this. Well done. I agree completely. So I was already seeing in real time as he was talking a tremendous uh, groundswell of endorsement of, of, of the position he was taking. I, I heard from two uh, separate friends who don't usually... Uh you know, don't don't usually follow Zoomer Media, and 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 they they were aware of the, of the Moses message, and they said, I can't believe someone finally said it. You know, like this this kind of um, you know th- this resentment against a politician and uh, personal resentment. It become it's it's not so much the politics; it's it's the person that that people focus the uh, venom towards, and and they won't even listen to him because they hate him so much. So Moses is. Moses's uh, message was very sort of, you know, let the politician speak. Uh, you know, he's a human being after all. Let him speak, and um, you know, Carp has had uh, Jugmeet Singh on last year, and it had Trudeau when when he launched his election in 2015. It had Deb Schultz. It, it you know, it's it's nonpartisan. It's had all these politicians, but why all of a sudden would someone cut off their arm if Doug Ford spoke? It, it just seems. You know the the message from Moses was very important, very timely, and uh, and I'm not surprised it's gone viral. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating officer and chief policy officer. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Speaking of Ontario's Premier, Doug Ford on Monday announced Phase 2 of the current COVID-related reopening plan would be moved up by four days to this past Thursday. There are no longer capacity limits in restaurants, bars, cinemas, and gyms. And on March 1st, vaccine certificate QR codes will no longer be needed to get into these facilities unless owners implement their own policies. Rocco Rossi is president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And Dr. Alon Vaisman is an infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Fight Back went to them for their reaction to the changes. I think uh, the timing was a little bit surprising that it came so quickly, but it is certainly consistent with many other um, jurisdictions around the world, including very uh, left-leaning kind of liberal places that have a similar kind of approach to the pandemic that we did. So the Nordic countries, the United States, the UK, Netherlands, very similar. I think uh, when it comes to the vaccine passport, there was two options. Either you increase it to three doses, which is the science is showing that it reduces transmission compared to two, or you scrap them all together. And I think the yield from trying to go to two to three would have been quite a challenge and probably not very successful when you look at how things have been done so far. So there wasn't really a lot of option with the vaccine passport. And I think just like many other jurisdictions, it did make sense for it to, to end at some point. The other indication for a vaccine passport initially was to try to increase numbers. And really, that that's done its job already. We're not going to increase numbers based on the vaccine passport anymore. So when it comes to that, I, I think it's probably the right thing to do. It's just a question of when the right timing is. Rocco, uh, this must be a good day for you. Well, it, it's exciting, um, but um, 
you know, a little bit along the lines of what the, the doctor was saying, for us in the business community, um, it's not enough that we reopen. We want to reopen in such a way that we never close down again. We want to reopen in such a way that you rebuild confidence um, because the assumption that um, it's only the uh, those who weren't vaccinated and kept away from restaurants because of vaccine passports, um, that that was the only difference in terms of economic activity. And in fact, as you pointed out in your opening remarks, Libby, you're, you're still feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And that's not unusual both for consumers and for employees. Um, because you can understand that after two years of being traumatized, that there's something out there looking to kill you, um, to, to now say you're going to, you're going to come back and wholeheartedly participate in the economy. It's not an on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch. And we need to be doing things that rebuild that confidence along with the reopening, which, which all of us uh, very much want. The Ontario Medical Association kind of said to doctors before the Omicron wave, start seeing patients in person. And uh, I think it's still very difficult. There are still a lot of doctors who will not see patients in person. Yeah, I, I definitely think that problem it just needs to be uh, specifically addressed on a case-by-case basis when that's occurring. I think everyone should recognize that there's, of course, a value to seeing patients in person. There's certain things that cannot be done virtually. But uh, when it is, when it can be done virtually, I think that that's going to generally be the preferred option um, because there's many patients who have limitations and be able to get uh, the medical care. Rocco, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I would encourage um, everyone to go and have a romantic dinner, uh, celebrate Valentine's Day, and help our local businesses by uh, buying local, dining local, sharing local, and uh, Take your uh, your vaccine passports and uh, and feel uh, confident that uh, businesses are doing everything they can to keep uh, you and their employees as safe as possible. Doctor Baseman, what would you like to leave us with? Yes, I, I agree with those sentiments as well. And I think people, as we start to move away and the wave comes down, and we have fewer and fewer cases, people are going to have you know various levels of comfort going back to restaurants and open places like that. But I think. If you're well vaccinated, if you're fully vaccinated, and our general population is also fully vaccinated, the risk to yourself is continuing to drop. So it is reassuring in the, in the near future that it's going to be safer and safer to dying. Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break is the Emergencies Act, Justin Trudeau's Just Watch Me Moment. A panel of experts discusses next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Tuesday, top of mind was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time since it was created in 1988. 
This legislation is the successor to the War Measures Act, famously invoked by then-Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau 50 years ago. So is this Justin Trudeau's just-watch-me moment? While there have been resolutions to the anti-vaccine mandate protests and occupations at various Canada-U.S. border crossings, the occupation in downtown Ottawa is still being cleared out. When Fightback's strategy panel joined Libby, we just learned that Peter slowly had resigned as Ottawa's police chief. So this development became part of the conversation as well. Here are John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister. There's been, what, three weeks now that we've had an occupation in Ottawa and other parts of Canada, or in Ontario specifically, with some border crossings. And it's unacceptable. And um, I appreciate protests. I appreciate people standing up for their rights. Um, and and I'm, all, I'm all for that. But the moment you start to disrupt and put other people in harm's way, which is what's been happening, cutting off economic growth, economic activity, I think the Premier and the Prime Minister all agree that's uncalled for. Um, but he's lost. He's lost time. And uh, I'm surprised it took him this long to act on this. You're talking about the Prime Minister. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and... We all have to stand together on this to ensure that other people aren't harmed because of the protest. Uh, I appreciate where they're standing. And things are happening. Things are being changed because people are standing up. But when you're putting other people in harm's way, when you're, when you're not allowing economic growth and economic activity and, and uh, safety to, to exist for other citizens of this country, uh, then you're being selfish. Karen Stintz, uh, I see a note here that you're sad that the police chief in Ottawa has resigned. I think it's tragic, to be honest. Um, you know, we've been through a lot of the pandemic, but one of the issues that did come forward is the fact that the police need to be more progressive in their approach to policing. And here we have one of the most progressive police officers, that police chiefs that Canada may, you know, may be seeing, and now he's the fall guy for a trucker protest that his force is completely ill-equipped to deal with. And, you know, the fact that it took the Prime Minister, I mean, I, I don't think it's a national emergency. I think it's an Ontario emergency. And I'm not going to underscore how disruptive it is to trade into the Ottawa community. But to suggest that the police chief and the Ottawa police could have dealt with this is, I think, really um, a complete, it, that's completely unrealistic. Those trucks, they can't move those trucks. They don't have the resources to move those trucks. And progressive policing is every, all, everyone has been calling for progressive policing. And so now what we've seen is just the limits of progressive policing. It doesn't mean we should get rid of the progressive police chief. You know, and now the prime minister has called this national emergency. It's not a national emergency. It's an, it's, it's an issue in Ontario. And already Doug Ford took the, took the steps to declare an emergency, a a provincial emergency, and he's cut off the funding and they've cleared the ambassador bridge. You know, the mayor of, Ottawa had, was in the process of negotiating a resolution, a partial resolution with the truckers. Now the rug has been swept underneath him. And it's interesting that the First Nations actually asked that this not be invoked. And yet, in spite of most premiers and First Nations asking, he did it anyway. Uh, John Capobianco, what do you think? With the whole emergency act, you know, Justin's now going to share with his father the dubious historic honor of having to invoke 
you know, of course, the father peer, the, the War Measures Act, and now the Emergencies Act. And and I do think that it, there's there's no question that the pressure that that Justin was facing from the public, from the opposition parties to to act, um, you know, led to this. I think the Prime Minister getting off and being divisive on this issue from the very beginning and, and having this broad brush that all of these protesters were, were you know, not legitimate or, or whatever terms he used at the time, I think it, it further sort of cemented the division that had it. And so these truckers were there from the very beginning, never having to ha- understand that the Prime Minister of Canada would, would never listen to them, would never give them the credence. Now, it's gotten considerably worse, obviously, but at the very beginning, there could have been a time when he could have at least had some olive branch or at least caused some other officials to have some negotiating tactics. But when he started off saying that these, these, these protesters were not legitimate and that they don't, they don't represent the mainstream of, of, of Canadians or of, of truckers in general, he lost that negotiating power. John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've been talking about the political ramifications of the Emergencies Act, but what about the legal aspects? One part of the legislation is key. It expands the powers of banks and FinTrack to cut off the source of funding for anti-mandate demonstrations and occupations. To find out more, Libby was joined by Wesley Wark, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. No, I think there are two components of what the government has proposed with the Emergencies Act, which it invoked yesterday. So, so it's it's in operation. It comes into effect immediately. One is the effort to clamp down by following the money on on global uh, platforms for fundraising that might be channeling uh, money to the protest movement. There, um, and, and the finance minister has promised to make uh, these powers permanent uh, in future. There, I must confess, I'm a bit skeptical of the, um, uh, you know, the ability of, of that kind of uh, effort to have much impact. Uh, you know, we've we've seen similar efforts over many years to block terrorism um, financing and to deal with um, money laundering. Neither very effective, and the problem. With trying to uh, try and enforce these measures against um, uh, foreign-based, uh, you know, platforms that are raising money, is that they're probably beyond the jurisdiction of the Canadian authorities. And you know, there are so many alternative channels, uh, including you know, Bitcoin and the dark web, that can be used to raise funds if people are really intent on on doing that. But um, Beyond the symbolic, I'm not sure about the the implications of, of that part of, of what's proposed. You know, there are some uh, deep pocket uh, investors, if you like, in the in the protest movement, but probably the vast majority of funds that have flowed to uh, the protest movement or or have attempted to flow to the protest movement involve sums far far below the ten thousand dollar threshold. So. I'm not really sure I see that happening. I think, to be honest, the the surgical tool that might really have an impact is is the ability that the federal government has given itself under the essential services provisions of the Emergencies Act to um, compel financial institutions to freeze or block personal and corporate uh, bank accounts of individuals 
associated with the protest, and indeed to require insurance companies uh, to uh, suspend insurance licenses for for truckers and trucking companies associated with the protest. That that is a that is a big and damaging power um, to deploy against the protest movement. Is it an overreach? That's a good question. Um, I, I, it may well be challenged by by the courts. Overreach, you know, has two implications. Is it is it an overreach in the law? Uh, we'll only know once it's tested in the law. It's is it an overreach in terms of a tool to be used uh, in this in this present emergency uh, and in the scale in face of the scale of the protest? I would say no. It's not an overreach in terms of trying to bring the protest to to an end uh, in a relatively peaceful manner and to send a very powerful warning signal to those involved. Will it ultimately prove to be a legal overreach? Well, the government has its legal experts, you know, uh, that give it advice on those matters. I guess they're convinced that it's not a legal overreach. The courts will ultimately decide, but that'll be well down the road. Wesley Wark, uh, just uh, do you think that uh, the Emergencies Act will get this thing wrapped up in a timely way or not? Maybe I, I, you know, I very much hope it will, and and I think um, your listeners should appreciate that there is a clock ticking, and it's a, it's, it's, you know, the government has to has to show success in a pretty short period of time. It's not just the thirty days when the Emergencies Act uh, can run. It's the critical period of time is the seven days before Parliament has to approve the Emergencies Act. So essentially, that means as as of yesterday, the clock ticks. The government, federal government, has to show success in dealing with a protest within those seven days. Or otherwise, I think parliamentary approval is very doubtful and the Emergencies Act uh, goes into the dustbin. Wesley Wark, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. James in Toronto phoned with his thoughts on what went wrong in the early days of the Ottawa occupation. I wonder if we could get some more specifics rather than generalities on what people feel the federal government should have done earlier, aside from the the so-called olive branch, because this is a three-week period, and many of these this this action that's being taken requires the. Uh, involvement of the province, and Doug Ford seems to be on board with the action. So I'm not quite clear what the federal government could have done on their own. A lot of this requires provincial involvement, the, the you know, the disbursement of the OPP, etc. And to lay it all on the federal government and said they, it all comes down to the lack of an olive branch seems to be, to me, naive or uh, deliberately misleading. Ian from London called to say he won't be returning to theaters when COVID vaccine certificates are no longer required starting March 1st. 
I recently uh, canceled my theater subscription with a large theater subscription company in Toronto, and they said it would take uh, a few days for the refund to appear because of the huge volume of refund. And this was, I expect, a reflection of what the protesters were demanding. And um, I don't think Zoomers will be hurrying back to theater when they know that nobody around them necessarily is vaccinated or has to have a vaccine passport. John in Peterborough doesn't like the idea of going to a restaurant without proof of vaccination. I'm fully vaccinated, but I'm not going to go in. But I maybe think what would be a good idea is these kits, the test kits, that yep. we all, if we all had them, and we could take a test before we go into a restaurant. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Rhonda in Kitchener, who wanted to see some joint action by the Premier and the Prime Minister in ending the Ottawa occupation. This was left gone, gone way too long. And the politicians wonder why we're losing faith and we're starting to get resentment because they wait. Not just that Ottawa promises, a lot of promises that we can go on about Libby. For the seniors, for, for raises, for pensions, for dental care, health care, the whole shebang. They don't seem to stand by their promises or their word. Well, Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Ford, whoever, get together, please. You have no choice now. And I mean no choice. And show us. Give us some faith that you have some backbone and some courage. And don't let these people do it anymore. They, we have to show vaccination at the border. Then you stick to your guns. What you said you were going to do, they have to show it or get out. Lose their contracts. Do something. Declare martial law, which I know is drastic, but aren't what they doing is drastic, inconsiderate, and insane. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.